From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, January 28th. Today, I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to make sense of the mixed signals in Impact Investing and the economy in general. Imogen Rose-Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hello, Brian. Hello, Imogen. Plus, Dennis Price has a report on one of Impact Alpha's most popular topics, impact measurement and management. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in impact investing. Climate has become a crypto play. Keeping track of carbon emissions and credits across markets and supply chains is a perfect use case for the blockchain, the technology behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Crypto trading already has drawn billions of dollars into carbon markets, but before it can green the planet, crypto has to green itself. By some estimates, crypto mining consumes up to 20% of the world's baseload energy, much of that from cheap coal and other fossil fuels. Check out Impact Alpha's dive into climate crypto this week. You may have heard about stranded fossil fuel assets. Get ready for stranded meat assets? According to a new report from MSCI and impact investor Blue Horizon, global food companies face significant climate transition risks. As a hedge, some corporations are moving into plant-based proteins. Animal-free protein alternatives are a $290 billion market that could account for 11% of global protein consumption by the year 2035. In deal flow this week, Mumbai-based Eversource Capital raised $741 million for its Green Growth Equity Fund to invest in renewable energy and efficiency in India. As a country, India has committed to develop 500 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2030. The Swedish private equity firm Summa Equity closes its third impact fund at $2.6 billion. Like its earlier funds, Summa's third fund is focused on the sustainable development goals and megatrends such as aging populations, migration, and the tech disruption. Azola Ventures, the successor to Prime Coalition's Prime Impact Fund, made its first investment in the Norwegian company Heaton, which builds high-temperature, energy-efficient industrial heat pumps. And finally, Bluemark, part of the consultancy Tideline, raised $3.8 million to build out its impact verification and assessment business. Bluemark has assessed dozens of asset managers and owners under the Operating Principles for Impact Management. And now it's time for a special report from Impact Alpha's editorial director, Dennis Price, who found that impact measurement is pushing its way to center stage after being relegated to the sidelines at investment funds over the past many years. Impact management at investment firms for too long has been about filling spreadsheets and checking boxes. More and more investors are leveraging data and technology to help the companies they invest in become more impactful and unlock financial value. Emma Glissman of Durham-based SJF Ventures says strong impact management can set an investment firm apart from its peers. There are more and more funds coming to market with specific theses around what impact means to them. And so a core piece of differentiating your strategy is that you need to show that it's working. In one instance, SJF identified slow adoption rates of benefits at a portfolio company that employed a large number of low-income workers. It worked with the company to improve uptake. That led to lower turnover, higher productivity, and reduced operating costs. 
In other words, more impact, more financial value. We like that example because we learned a lot from the questions we asked and the analysis we did. And it led to a lot of um, engagement with the company on impact-oriented projects that drove business value. SJF is now moving away from unwieldy spreadsheets. The firm spent the last year analyzing data platforms that could help the firm survey its portfolio companies, make sense of the data, and compare its own performance to that of its peers. SJF selected Upmetrics, a San Francisco-based firm originally designed to support nonprofits and foundations. Having a technology platform that allows us to gather data and spit out what we want to um, and analyze in the way that we want to is what will enable the reporting and the analysis of impact to be that much better for all stakeholders involved. The arms race for better, smarter, and quicker data is driving investments in tech firms and consulting services that can deliver it. This week, Bluemark, which helps verify the quality of impact management systems at investment firms, raised $3.8 million in grants and equity. Last month, 60 Decibels, a company that collects data directly from consumers, raised $8.8 million. I spoke to CEO Sasha Dichter, who says demand for quality data is a market-level trend driven home by pandemic-era disruptions to the economy. This increased level of transparency visible to end consumers is a macro trend, and we want to be part of it. Once again, that was Impact Alpha's Dennis Price speaking with Emma Glissman of SJF Ventures and Sasha Dichter of 60 Decibels. Now it's time for our feature conversation. I'm joined once again by our roundtable regulars, Imogen and David. Now, Imogen, this week you called out the Canadian Pension Fund, Alberta Investment Management Company, or AIMCO, which has high ESG scores, but at the same time, as you put it, is up to its neck in tar sands oil. What's up with that? So we were looking at the Responsible Allocators Index, which came out in November from the ThinkTech New America. And they had AIMCO as one of their, ranked as one of their leaders for their ESG initiatives. And, you know, it's well known that Canadian pension plans broadly take ESG seriously. But it's also well known that a number of these plans, AIMCO being you know, one of the most noticeable, have significant investments in oil and gas, and particularly in the case of the Alberta Investment Management Company, investments in part of the sort of oil and tar sands ecosystems, including sort of pipelines and other tar sands related infrastructure. So it's not a surprise to see Canadian pension plans rank well on a responsible investment indices. But it is really striking to see AIMCO in particular rank so highly when, on the one hand, yes, they're investing in clean and renewable tech. And on the other hand, they do all these investments in the sort of dirty fossil fuel sector and not only do they do these investments, but they're doing them in part because they're in their own backyard because Alberta has a huge deposit of fossil fuels, um, which the Alberta government and the Canadian government is trying to get out of the ground and into the economy. 
And Alberta itself has a mandate to make investments in these Canadian fossil fuel resources. So what I'm talking about in the column and what is sort of frustrating is you have these ESG rankings that purely look at what investors like AIMCO report that they're doing on the sort of ESG and sustainability and responsible investing front, but don't take into account all of these non-ESG activities that somebody like an AIMCO, and they're not, you know, there are other Canadian plans that this applies to as well, are also doing. And it's, it's, so it's a challenge that the Canadian investors have in particular for a number of reasons. And it's also sort of a challenge that these kind of rankings have because they don't take what I call a sort of 360-degree view of what institutional investors are doing when it comes to ESG. They just look at what they report, and they don't kind of put it into the context of the broader economy and broader activities. And they also, and I think this is one of the reasons that you can end up with these issues, is they fail to take into account the governance of the allocators themselves. I want to say that this is why exactly why we enlisted Imogen to do this institutional impact column, because as she put it, um, you know, look at what these allocators do, not just what they say. And so, you know, there's there's issues with the rankings, which she called out from from the New America Foundation and this Responsible Asset Allocators Index. But it's a broader question about how to hold um, allocators and, and then the companies they invest in to account and one of the you know criticisms that is very common now is that somehow there's something wrong with ESG uh, in general that it somehow you know has failed to deliver real world results. I would argue that it, it really the failure is with the companies and possibly with the allocators. They're the ones who are failing the environmental and social um, uh, on, on environmental and social performance. But that you have to look as as Imogen did, you know, at the very particular investments they make, at the impact of those investments, go beyond sort of the box ticking and and the impact reports, and really dig in on exactly those e, e S, and G indicators that um, that that Imogen is talking about. You know, some of this is the difference between being a journalist and ac- academic. You know, in the case of you know, journalists, like nothing more than sort of like digging in and following the story, right? Like that's our idea of a good time. Academics like nothing more than a data set. And so particularly for like sovereign wealth and public pension plans, this is a massive data set. So from an academic perspective, it's like you get the data set, you crunch the numbers, the results come out, you know, ding, 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 you're done. And they don't take the step back and think, hmm, maybe Alberta shouldn't be a leader in ESG. Like maybe there are some other things we should think about. Maybe the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund shouldn't be ranked higher than the University of Illinois Pension Plan purely because the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund has some kind of disclosure about what it's doing in its ESG. So I'm guessing they would say, look, we understand that it's a bit weird, but this is our model and this is how the results come out, rather than saying our model is flawed and we need to consider that. And again, to New America's credit, they make the point that they constantly keep changing and revising this. And there clearly is like you do want to encourage transparency and disclosure. But I think the danger you have here is that 
effectively allocators are studying to the test rather than actually going out and doing the hard work of transforming their portfolios in a way that would really be additive and you know sustainable and ESG friendly. So Imogen, is this an example then of where you stand on an ESG issue depends on where you sit? Uh, in, in this case, if you are a Canadian pension fund and you are charged with increasing the uh, an economic vibrancy of your uh, region of Canada, then of course you're going to invest in the economic activity of that region, which in this case involves, you know, ex extracting oil from tar sands. But you see, that's kind of my point, right? Like these things are not equal, and so you know, we're talking the story about sort of net neutrality. So net neutrality effectively says, okay, yeah, you can do some bad things, but then those get netted out by the good things, and it all kind of comes together in the wash. No, you know, no harm, no foul. But there's a material difference between investing in some Canadian tar sands and, I don't know, having an equity position in Exxon. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't take into account any of that nuance, set aside the fact that pipelines are considered not to have high carbon emissions because you don't take into, a, into account scope three emissions. So I don't... No, I don't think this is a case of, you know, where you sit is where you stand. I think it's a case of we need to be more honest and more sophisticated in how we think about these issues rather than just allowing the corporations or in this case the allocators to dictate what the ESG story they want to paint is. And so, David, is this a matter of uh, false uh, false advertising that that perhaps you know it's it's perhaps fine that the Canadian uh, this Canadian pension fund Aimco is invested in tar sands, but perhaps it shouldn't then at the same time tout its ESG credentials. So, is this more uh, of an issue of hypocrisy, or is this more of an issue of they they need to have some kind of reckoning with uh, what they consider to be uh, a true impact? Well, I mean, as, as Imogen said, you know, journal, what journalists love actually the most, Imogen, is finding the hypocrisy of somebody who claims something and then is and then is exposed for for something else. Um, but no, Brian, I don't think I, I think that's my earlier point is it's not fine for them to invest in tar sands oil. Tar sands oil is perhaps the dirtiest fossil, you know, among the dirtiest fossil fuels, certainly the dirtiest oil on the planet. And if we're going to get to a you know, zero carbon um, economy and, and anytime soon, we need to essentially, you know, uh, shut it down. And so we should not be building more pipelines to, to, to pump it. And we should not be, um, and we, we should be helping, you know, the, the, the oil field workers and others who, 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 who need to transition. That's, that's, that's clear. But, um, but basically, if you are, to your point, if you're claiming to be a ESG investor, you should have a position that says we are going to move away from tar sands oil. Of, of, and that's obviously tough for, for Canadian pension funds to do. Um, I'm, I'm less concerned about whether they make it onto the, the, the ESG list and more concerned about whether they actually change their investment policies and take a political stand even, and as well as an investment stand against, against tar sands oil. And then this is a little bit where, like, you know, not all Canadians, right? Like the Quebec pension plan and others have been have gone further along the lines of divestment and trying to get away from fossil fuels. It's harder for Alberta and some other funds 
to do that. And, you know, I think one of the things that's striking is they're not, it's not, yes, some of this information isn't that easy to find, but they're not hiding it. Like it's on their website that they're making all these investments. And again, it's a sort of schizophrenic identity where on the one hand, they're really proud of it because woohoo, helping to get people of Alberta. And on the other hand, you know, they're really proud of their responsible investing approaches because they want to, you know, be praised for that as well. I think, so so to a certain extent, the fault does lie with the analysts who don't take into account, you know, effectively both their investment reports and their responsible investment reports. And I don't know that you can really ask, you know, Alberta to include on its responsible investment report, oh, and by the way, we're doing all this stuff in tar sands over here. Like, that's not the purpose of that report. Maybe we should ask it to be, maybe we should demand more sort of, again, 360 degree transparency, but you can do the work yourself and go and look at the look at the two two announcements. There's nothing stopping someone from doing that. You've made a, a good point, Imogen, about studying for the test, because the the flip side of this, of course, is that many of the ESG funds and the ESG allocations um, that folks have touted as being low carbon or, or what have you have been very heavily weighted towards tech stocks. We had Martin Whitaker on the show last week, um, and he was explaining the Just 100, um, and it was ex- very heavily weighted, almost entirely weighted. The top 10, I believe, were almost all tech stocks. And so ESG funds have enjoyed strong performance, but on the backs of the of the tech run-up of recent years. Now that tech is running is is leading the downturn in the in the in the stock market, those ESG funds are not going to have as good performance. I wonder whether they'll be 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 as heavily touted. Well and I think it's going to be sort of worse than that because in an inflationary environment it's likely that, you know, stuff like oil majors and bank stocks do well. Um, as tech stocks do badly. So you could see the sort of the bifurcation become even greater, you know, at least over sort of a middling to short period of time. Meaning folks will be fleeing ESG stocks into oil? Meaning that oil will significantly outperform. Like, and and how tempting is it? If you take, if you make the analysis of where, where can I, where, where can I get my inflationary hedge? And the answer is oil. How tempting is it to do that as an ESG investor? And that's going to be really interesting for institutional investors because they obviously have a fiduciary duty, whereas individual investors can lead with their values. That kind of inflationary hedge doesn't sound good for our climate ambitions, Imogen. Now, David, speaking of climate ambitions, you had a story this week about crypto and climate. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, it's, we dug into the v- proliferation of coins and tokens and chains uh, um, uh, as the crypto world moves into the climate world, or possibly the climate world moves into the crypto world. I'm not quite sure. Um, and there's an argument that blockchain, we, we said blockchain has long been a solution in search of a problem and that climate may be that problem, that the very particular and granular uh, challenges of accounting for carbon credits and retiring them and parsing them out among the different um, contributors to those credits, um, all of that is a perfect application for this distributed ledger of blockchain, which, as you know, is the underlying kind of technology behind all these 
these crypto uh, currencies as, as as well as much much more. Just to Imogen's point about the sell-off, though, crypto itself has had a massive sell-off. Something lost something like a trillion dollars in market cap in the last few months. Um, uh, but nonetheless, there was a, 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 a lot of enthusiasm for applying all that technology to the climate challenge. In fact, we're going to round some of this up in our Agents of Impact call coming up Tuesday, February 8th, where we look at all the different implications of what still is effectively a rising price of carbon around the world. All right. Well, we look forward to that conversation. And that's going to do it for your impact briefing this week. Thank you so much, Imogen. Thank you. And thank you, David. And thanks to both of you. Subscribe to receive the daily email brief and access to all Impact Alpha content. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. And thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>